I envy the entrepreneur that is able to be extremely successful and doesn't feel a deep-seated anxiety every waking minute of every day because I still feel it today. And I have every day since I've done this. And the fear of failure lives. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. It's not a rational sentiment. It is a deep psychological fear of failure that drives me every single day. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. From time to time, I like to talk to pioneers in progressive political technology. Today's guest is John Karish, who's been building campaign websites for Democrats since he was a college student in the late 90s. His company, Liberty Concepts, continues to this day, though he would now say that he sells new media and communication services to help build engaged communities. John was thoughtful and frank and entertaining about what it took to build an enterprise in the political technology space and what he's learned along the way. So, After a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with John Karish of Liberty Concepts. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Nathaniel. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm John Karish, uh, president and founder of Liberty Concepts. We are a, uh, a digital consulting agency with a large civic and advocacy clientele headquartered in Boston, Massachusetts. First of all, we know each other because we ran enterprises going back to the late 90s in the political tech space. And it's been a while since we've talked, but it's nostalgic just to think about all the time that's gone together. But I realize that there are definitely parts of your story that I'm not familiar with. So when I look at your bio, it seems like you started this firm before even being out of college. Uh, is that true? And how do you get into this space? Yeah. So I was born and raised in uh, in semi-rural Maine, born in Bangor, grew up there, went to high school in, uh, in the Augusta Waterville area in the middle of Maine, was fortunate enough to get to go to the University of Pennsylvania for college. I was the class of 2001, so entered in 1997. So it was really sort of the heyday of the tech boom, the early tech boom. And just a great deal of attention and time was being spent on all things, the internet and, and computers and hardware. And and Penn at the time with the Wharton School was an extremely entrepreneurial place. I believe at the time the MBA students were taking out loans on their credit cards, cash advances at 11, 12, 14% interest rates and reinvesting the money in tech stocks at the time because they thought they could perform marginally better even with the high interest rates they were paying on the credit card debt. So Some of them a, may not have done that well around 2000, I would guess. 
Yeah, no, hopefully they sold, you know, they sold early, but you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out so well after about, but by the time I graduated, it was on the, on the downward slide. What did you major in? I was a political science major, always fascinated by politics, you know, born and raised in sort of a, a very leftist. My dad describes himself as a, as a borderline Marxist and uh, very progressive, liberal, traditional sort of ex-hippie, uh, lefty intellectual uh, upbringing, anti-Reagan household as a, as a young kid. So always had a sort of a yen for, uh, uh, for politics from an early age and knew that I wanted to be involved in some way. Yeah, from an early age. But I know you as early on as a person who was building websites for campaigns, where did the tech side come from? Sort of by happenstance is that um, uh, it's a funny story because the business was built out of this, but there were a bunch of uh, students taking a class where they needed to learn a website. It wasn't a class I was in and I was sort of intrigued by it. So I went to the Penn bookstore my end of my freshman year and bought how to build web pages for dummies. The target audience. <laughs> yeah, so so exactly right. So I was I was per- perfectly qualified in every way for that for that publication, and so I bought the book and sort of taught myself to code websites more or less. First in text editor and then Dreamweaver two in the in the old days, and a little bit of Macromedia Flash all long gone, and sort of taught myself to do it uh, in my spare time, and then my sophomore year of college, I got an internship at the. Department of Labor in the state of Maine. And my task was to build a website for some career center program that they had. And honestly, it took me about two weeks and I had to be there all summer. And so I spent the rest of my time essentially teaching myself everything I could about web development with the idea of using it for political purposes, um, sort of marrying that skill set with my actual passion. And it was it was a good time for that because every political organization was trying to figure out in the very as you remember in the early stages what are we doing we need to do something and there weren't a lot of people doing this at this time very few actually and so I um, volunteered that summer for the Maine Democratic Party and built their website in my free time not on government time in free time and then in the fall I got my first paying gig with Mark Lawrence who ran for U.S. Senate against Olympia Snow in the state of Maine. And that was my first campaign that I worked on. John, what was so intriguing about websites for you? Why, why were you spending your free time doing it? What captured you there? One, it was there was, a, there was a fun side of being able to physically make something that had utility. And I know that you have a carpentry, or at least for a long time had a carpentry. Uh, uh, you know, I like building furniture and stuff. Yeah, building yeah. furniture, right? And I think it was a sort of a precursor to the ability to just create something, right? Something that could be useful. And as a young person, you really don't do that very much, right? Create anything that's actually useful. My first job was, you know, sweeping up movie theaters. Um, so it was the idea of being able to create something was definitely intriguing. And then two, I think the desire to be involved in it was is that. I, from an early age, I really didn't like the idea of working my way up from the bottom and didn't have much patience for that sort of low level intern work. And this was a way to become immediately valuable and useful at a higher tier than having to do sort of the traditional political campaign background where you're stuffing envelopes and and doing that. So I had immediate utility through the technology. So there was the interest in the tech side and just the fact that most people didn't or couldn't figure out how to do it at the time. Since then, of course, everybody can do it. And then being able to apply it in a way that made me feel like I had a little juice. That's probably not true, but at the time, that's how it felt. How would you characterize your personality back then in terms of like, there seems to be a range from, I don't know, introvert to extrovert to end up running a company 
how would you describe yourself? I would say relentlessly extroverted, you know, which is not necessarily the, you know, I would not necessarily the prototype for starting a business. And, and I never intended to start a business. So I don't come from an entrepreneurial background. You know, no one in my family, money was never sort of a, a there were no business owners. There was no, I come from a family of academics. There was no sort of drive to build a business or make money or entrepreneurship or anything like that. So it was just sort of happened. Although Penn was very f- formative for that because it was a very entrepreneurial place when I was there. And so, yeah, as, as a, a budding entrepreneur, I took on a lot at the time, including, and it was fortunate enough even in college to get a large number of speaking roles at the big conferences that we all used to go to a long, long time ago. Yeah. And was, was out there as much as I could be. My senior year of college, I sort of co-founded one of the vote swapping websites, the Nader Trader sites. What was it called? Win, win, win campaign. Um, and we became sort of you know, as a senior in college, we became sort of moderately famous for a very short period of time where for about two weeks, you know, it was all the rage. It was all over CNN. We had Secretary of State in California shut us down. Um, for those who don't know, what's a vote swapping? Sure. So at the time, progressives were very concerned with the reality that in the Bush versus Gore election, that Ralph Nader's candidacy was so viable that he was going to take just enough votes away from left-leaning voters in swing states that George Bush would win the Electoral College and Al Gore would lose, which, by the way, is exactly what happened, a Florida Supreme Court decision notwithstanding. Um, and so we created a website that would sort of game the Electoral College system where a Gore voter in a safe state, a solidly blue state where the vote really wasn't going to make a difference, could swap their vote um, with a Nader could vote for Nader yeah. in, a, in a swing state so that it would produce the combined win-win campaign outcome of Ralph Nader would achieve 5% of the popular vote, which at the time would have ensured federal matching funding for the Green Party moving forward, but also ensure a Gore victory in the election. And it was a hit. We had massive participation, a large amount of coverage. It was even it was talked about even heavily on election night up until things fell apart. So the narrative of the Florida ballot recount crisis sort of killed the the vote swapping narrative early on election night. But it was was my first exposure with a very high profile sort of uh, uh, political technology initiative. And, and I was hooked at, you know, at tw- I was 20, 21 years old and just something that wasn't, you know, done. And so it was it was exciting. I mean, I think that's one of the amazing things about a website that we all take for granted right now. But just this idea that you could change something in code and the world would see the change and then could also be interactive. There's something, it's so obvious now, but it was so breathtaking in the 90s. Yeah, it was It was beautiful. And there, and there was also, there was enormous optimism, which maybe I don't feel today, but uh, there was enormous optimism at the time that we were going to change the game, right? And that politics would become more participatory and that by breaking down the cost of entry into the political environment that you know, we could achieve glorious things and, and a better a better functioning government and electoral electoral system. And so there was just there was enormous hope and optimism. And this was in the early stages of online voting, too. And in my senior year, I ended up writing essentially a small book on on online voting, like on, on the idea that we should switch from balloting the way we traditionally did to voting through the web? Or what Actually, you, what the premise said that that's how I went into the project. But however, I found what we've sort of discovered today is that unfortunately, voting online doesn't actually work very well. And that there was just a massive number of problems from 
access to literacy, to security that made, and this is, by the way, this is in 2000, and it's the same arguments that we have today, right? So we have not, we have not cracked the code on how to make that work. So I went into that project very optimistic that I would make a compelling argument, but that my, my research found otherwise, and that I think in many ways, the simplest voting methods are perhaps the most audible and the best, but nevertheless, yeah, so that, that was how I went into that. So just to take you back to that main Democratic Party website and then Mark Lawrence, how did it go making them a website? Tell that story a little bit about those early initiatives and, and how did that lead to sort of starting a company? I think it went well. It went well in that they were able to raise money early on, which as you know from from your ventures, sort of, I wish I'd had more focus on that as you did early on. They were able to raise money. They looked great. They were highly functional. They were better than their opponents by leaps and bounds. I mean, I poured my heart and soul into them, right? So there was a, it was a, an obsession in those days with making things beautiful and good and functional. And of course, as I look back at them, they're they're terrible. But um, <laughs> but at the time, they were they were they were highly functional and and worked well. There was sort of a gratefulness around the folks that were running these enterprises at the time had virtually no idea what any of this was. So simply to have something that gave them a little bit of money and some good press and looked great and was a feather in their cap was a huge win. And when I got back to you know, school in the fall of my junior year, we I don't know why, but I just kept decided I wanted more. So, so I started working with the now current mayor of Philadelphia, Jim Kenney, when he was a city councilman, and then just started relentlessly networking and peddling myself to anybody who was interested in, you know, building. And we did a few more campaign websites before the end of school. Um, but the transformative project for me was I was fortunate enough to win a uh, national essay competition on the future of internet and democracy my senior year of college from the John Glenn Institute at Ohio State. And between the prize money for the contest and the institute ended up hiring me to build their website when I came out of school. And it was enough money that I didn't need to get a job. And so that was really very fortunate crossover between um, academics and, and the professional side. What did you say in that essay? I essentially talked about the massive participatory possibilities for, for digital politics and the enablement for mass organizing and lowering the cost of traditional campaign access and the ability to reach individual. It was a very optimistic essay. Um, it didn't focus much on online voting, just portending the transformative power of digital politics on the entire campaign and electoral infrastructure. I don't think anyone nowadays can grasp how few people had an intensity of interest around that intersection of tech and politics back then. I mean, like you could spot them all around the country. Yeah, it was a it was a small group. We all knew each other, you know, and we all and, you know, you either had some form of startup or you were, you know, writing a blog about something. Guys like Phil Noble, you know, all these uh, these folks. But, yeah, it was a very small. It was the same group of us at all of these things. Everybody knew each other. So when did the idea of incorporating and naming something Liberty Concepts come to you? When did that all happen? Sitting in my dorm room, I just sort of sort of made sense. Let's let's start a business. Let's let's do this. Let's see if we can make it happen. The name was sort of, I think originally I wanted it to be um, Valhalla Digital, but that all the domain names were taken. Um, <laughs> Liberty Concepts just seemed to be a hybrid semi-technical name versus a uh, you know, Liberty and some political, some hybrid name. It wasn't a very uh, sophisticated branding process like we give our clients these days, but uh, but it worked. At what point did you make a hire? 
and sort of broaden out from John Karish? Yeah. So basically, you know, getting out of school from 21 to age 24, I basically 25, I did it more or less myself. And I was working hard. I think at the peak, I personally was running 34, 38 websites for congressional candidates by myself by age 24. I was working just insane, ridiculous hours and on call 24-7. Still on call 24-7. That never changed, but um, the hours have gotten a little better. I had a little bit of admin help to help with some invoicing and such, but really my first real hire was when I was 25 I moved the company out of Philadelphia where I'd stayed after college up to Boston so I could go to to the Kennedy School at Harvard for grad school. And at that point, between the five classes at Harvard and then the company really started to take off at the time I hired my first, my first real hire was a graphic designer named Kristen, um, who ended up working with me for 14 years, a remarkable talent. And she was my first hire. And then there was a developer um, six months later, my first developer and then a, a project manager, and then another developer, and then another developer, and then another developer. And then, yeah, so that was the, that was sort of the chain of chain of hiring. So in my mid twenties, and that was a very scary point. That's where I first got an office and moved out of, you know, sort of the apartment slash dorm environment. And, you know, that was, that was when it became a real business, um, as opposed to just a a sole entrepreneurship. And a lot of days now that I've been running a, a business like this for 20 years, I kind of miss just being a sole entrepreneur at times. But um, but yeah, that was sort of the track of, of getting the first full-time people on board. What were you building these websites in for tools? We had built a homemade CMS through a... Um, content management system. Yep, yeah. Con- sorry for the uninitiated, a content management system. This is pre-Drupal and WordPress days, right? So this was the wild west of running websites. And even... At the time, a content management system wasn't a prerequisite. My first series of websites had no content management systems, and they were all updated by hand by me, basically. And then became clear you needed to have a content management system. That became sort of table stakes. And so we had a homemade ASP.NET CMS that one of my talented computer science buddy of mine built most of the architecture for for something else and let me use it. And he worked on a few things with me part-time, and I futzed with it myself. We used that for several for several years. That was sort of the back end of the of the website. It was very simple, updating press releases, events, nothing like what you see today. And we were both at that time in the market enough that we would have clients using our software for a CRM or you know contact management system and your websites in many cases, and that we would have to have them talk to each other. Yeah. My perfect formula in those days was someone hiring us for the website and hiring you guys for compliance and donations because we didn't want to deal with the anything having to do with data and CRM at that point was just above my level of technical sophistication and where I tapped out. And obviously I wasn't investing in programmatic resources like you were and didn't have your ability. So that was the perfect hybrid um, for us. And so, yeah, so we were able to make things, a lot of conversations with your teams over the years on on integrations and making things work. And that was always a very good relationship for us between our two companies until you guys started building websites. <laughs> it was still a good relationship, but yeah, we ended up being co-opters after a while as opposed to purely working together. You had mentioned that you went to the Kennedy School. You're, so here you are with a, with a growing firm and making a good living over time building websites. Why go to the Kennedy School? What were you thinking and, and what'd you get out of it? 
So originally I was going to go to law school because that was just a, a trajectory of the politically oriented person. And I was into law school and into the Kennedy School and had to make a very difficult decision. It seemed impossible to go to law school, which is a very rigorous, not to say that the Kennedy School isn't rigorous, but a, a little more, I would say the first year of law school is, is a more intensive process than the first year of an MPP at the Kennedy School. And I couldn't find a happy lawyer anywhere. Um, and every <laughs> lawyer I talked to said, don't go to law school. So I made the decision to sort of stick with the business and go to and go to grad school at Harvard. So that was the decision-making matrix that I had something going here. I mean, we were serving at the time, it was it wasn't a huge amount of money. We didn't have NGP style revenue, but we were, you know, it was a real, we had a real customer base, right? Like I, I wasn't an expert on monetization for sure. If I could go back, I would have done things differently on that front if I just wanted to to make more money out of the process. But, you know, we were the largest provider of campaign websites to congressional candidates in the country at this point, right? So it was real, right? I mean, it was, you know, we had a real market share, we had a real base. So I took it to, to grad school and that was probably, that was easily the hardest two years of my life, just trying to balance, you know, five classes and and the company really started to grow then both in clients and revenue. And it was, um, I put on 50 pounds, I was working just an unfathomable amount of hours looking back on it at the time. It was, it was a tough, it was a tough couple of years, but it was worth it. Yep. That's a professional degree there. That's a lot of policy. I, I assume tools like uh, econometrics uh, around a lot of very politically oriented, career oriented people, connections. What'd you get out of it? From a professional setting, honestly, I felt like I knew as much about the campaign process at that point as virtually anybody teaching the classes there. Not that they weren't more experienced or longer there, but I had already been so indoctrinated to the campaign world. So functionally, I think the economics courses there were more it were as interesting to me as anything else because I was just building a worldview on micro and macroeconomics, I think was extremely helpful. And they have some very talented faculty there. And I would say perhaps where the Kennedy School shines more than anywhere else is on foreign policy. You just get, you had the best people there. You Samantha Power, you get the best folks in public policy at the Kennedy School. Looking back at it, it was, it was a kind of a blur. No one should go to grad school and work 70 hours a week on top of it. And I missed out on a great deal of of what that place could have been, but it, it was the nature of the beast. So, and networking for my business, the Kennedy School paid for itself within five months of graduation. And it has been a long-term alumni network for me for business growth. And for that, it was worth its weight in gold. I got sent to Beirut right after right after grad school on a, on a pretty large assignment, which was um, uh, one of the more interesting things that I've done in the sort of the digital political technology world. And that came out of the Kennedy School. And I've had some great relationships there that, you know, my class, you know, I'm 40, roughly 40 years old now. And, you know, the the class that I graduated with are starting to reach that tier where they're running things and have sort of moved up. And it's just a, a really great group of people. What'd you do in Beirut? Um, I was sent over on a project funded by USAID to help rebuild the technical infrastructure of the Lebanese government. We basically went, we're boots on the ground very soon after the Israel pulled out of the last major Israeli-Lebanese war. And so we were sent in at what was still a very difficult and interesting time. Hezbollah at the time was still occupying downtown Beirut. And by occupying, I mean, they'd set up a perimeter around even our hotel, essentially, where barbed wire everywhere and literally a military encampment in the middle of the city. You couldn't imagine this in the United States, but that's exactly what it was. And we literally needed to Every time I go to the hotel, we would have to be let in by a Hezbollah guard with an AK-47 literally standing right there. So we were there for a while and we ended up helping to build a bunch of websites, including the foundational 
website for the Lebanese government at the time and several of their ministries, basically with the goal of the government that was in power at the time was one that the United States had an interest in, didn't want Hezbollah to take control of the of the Lebanese government. So hopefully I'm not saying anything that's off record or off book at this point. Uh, this is years ago now. But um, uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a really fun project. So I got to spend a lot of time uh, in Beirut. And Le- Lebanon is a beautiful country and uh, fascinating politi- and very interesting political environment and history, which continues today. I mean, when you graduate from a master's program and you've had a successful but not huge enterprise going, was there a decision for you about, am I going to take my career in a different direction or am I going to continue this company that I started as an undergraduate? Or, or was it like always going to be, I'm continuing? No, there were certainly times where I wasn't sure, where I wasn't sure. But when something's growing and has momentum, it's hard to take a step back and walk away from it, right? You want to see where it goes. I think the harder decisions at the time were around um, acquisitions and selling. As you recall, we had a cup of coffee and a conversation at one point about NGP acquiring Liberty. I still wonder today if I made the wrong decision. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I, I wish I have an offline <laughs> conversation about how that valuation would be today or whether I would have gotten uh, diluted <laughs> sufficiently to make that not a good financial decision. We had a number of suitors, yourself included, and, and some others at the time, basically, that were that were looking to acquire Liberty. And I never pulled the trigger um, I did have a deal done a few years ago to sell the company, but that, another story altogether, although we could talk about it. Um, but yeah, so I think it was it was less, am I going to go do something else and more along the lines of how am I going to run and grow a business? Um, because the, the challenges of entrepreneurship are very different than the challenges of actually doing the work. And that's been sort of the largest learning curve has not been, I've always found the work this will come across as hubris. I've always found the work very manageable and easy and fun. Not easy, not in not overly difficult, right? I'm, we're not writing, right? You know, we're not building, you know, NASA space shuttle technology, right? So, but actually, running a business is an extremely difficult. I, I don't think I ever possibly appreciated how difficult it is to run a small business. And that can be good and bad too. I mean, there's something very addictive, I think, about the the daily challenge. What do you think is difficult about running a small business? Uh, I think management of individuals is one of the most underrated, difficult tasks in any business or enterprise. You know, I think when you work for someone, which I almost never have, which is another reason why shifting gears would be hard for me. It's hard to, when you've when you've been running your own business since it would be a very unique opportunity at this point in my life for me to go work for someone else. There would need to be either a lot of fun or a large number of zeros attached to that. Managing folks is 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 just very, very difficult. And I would also say that managing folks in our line of work is also extremely difficult. Managing artists is is challenging. Designers, because there's, uh, at least in my experience, there's just a very different value proposition to what work provides. Our bit line of work is not a purely financially motivated line of work. I mean, I think when you're working in finance, it's very clear what everyone is there for. It's very black and white how how things work, basically, in a financial institution. Um, but when, when you're running a small business with developers and artists, the value proposition for why they are there varies greatly. For some, it's the type of work that they want to do. For some, it's who they're working with and who they're working for. Managing temperaments, um, managing egos, just remarkably difficult to keep even a small team happy at all times. Well, which I've come to learn is impossible, actually. But you know, you you try to do your best. And small businesses, unfortunately, occasionally run a little bit too much like families and a little less like businesses at times. And especially when folks have been with you for a long time. And as a boss, 
at least I always feel a great deal of sort of responsibility towards my employees for making sure that they are happy, that they are getting what they need out of it, probably at the expense of my business at times. And I was never prepared for any of that. And, and I don't know that anybody is. I don't know if you go through an entrepreneurship program, you learn that. For me, I think it's something you just need to learn. You just have to do it the hard way. And I've made every single mistake five times over. Hopefully I've learned from them, but um, certainly haven't been perfect on that front. But it's been, yeah, th- that's been remarkably challenging. And then making strategic decisions about how to run a business. Are you building a business to sell? Are you building a business to maximize revenue? Are you building a business for, you know, to change the world? For some type of investment or funding, what what are you doing? You know, and these are still questions you wrestle with every day, even now. And it's what what is what is the best sort of pathway forward for you, for the business, for your employees? Remarkably difficult to assess and understand because there are really no right or wrong answers. There's only choices. What would you say you were best at or are best at in terms of running a business, and what were you least good at? I would say probably best at getting the business more than anything else. And it's probably the point of the business that I enjoy more than anything else. The sales. Yeah. You know, the stigma of sales, I think, is um, it, it gets a bad rap, I think, in the world in general, right? It is the most important. Without it, there are, there is no business, right? It is not. If you're the best engineers in the world and the best designers in the world, if you don't have somebody to go out and get that work, it is just vitally, vitally important. In fact, I would argue that all of the other stuff can be figured out far more easily, but bringing in the business just has to happen. I mean, without revenue, it just none of this works, right? So, um, and that's what I enjoy the most. And and generally, I've always felt that if you're going to get in a room around a piece of business, I'm going to close it eight or nine times out of 10, right? And still feel that way today. What I enjoy the least, accounting and financial management. Uh, I outsource all that now, but never, never enjoyed any sort of any sort of aspect uh, about that. And then HR would be a close second of what I enjoy the least. You know, it's funny. I think I'm a little bit the inverse of you on some of these things. I think I remember that from our early days. I think you. I remember you saying that you did all of your own bookkeeping early on, and you had everything to a T. And I got help little by little, but I was not a salesperson. You know, and natively, I'm not an extrovert. My theory was uh, make a really good product and support it really well. And the product will sell itself and the service will get you advocates. And it was a long time before I built a, a decent sales operation. And, and that went on after me as well. Yeah. And I think both ways are right. And obviously, I think the best thing would be able to have both. And I think both of us found ways to complement our own skills with other people around us. Yeah, you have to, you're just not going to survive. But yeah, it always shocked me. You know, when I first got to know you, you know, you guys were already larger than we were. And I remember going to your first offices and I remember thinking, wow, the, you you were, you had such a shy manner about you, right? So you were so measured and, and shy. And I was like, how is this guy growing a business, right? I mean, he's not, it's <laughs> just, he's very pensive and quiet and thoughtful. And I'm just, how is he selling anything? And I think maybe part of it is the differences between our two businesses that you are, I think we were still more of a service at all times. You and were I much more public facing in, in what you were selling. And I was much more infrastructural. Yep. Yep. But it shows there's many roads to Rome too, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the nature of our businesses were still a little different, although they were on, in similar tracks. But the, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're building a straight product, there's certainly. I mean, we had these conversations about the difference between product and service. And I think I was very fortunate in the scalability of a product. 
the way you build once, sell many times works out and sort of the layer cake of revenue that it provides with, you know, monthly rental of technology that was a really good engine for growth. So I didn't understand that at the time. It was only later in life that I realized that a consulting business is a terrible business model, right? It's awful, right? Any hourly billing model or anything that doesn't scale is intrinsically terrible because you're simply providing more. The lawyers do all right. The lawyers do all right, but only because, well, even that business model is suffering today. Uh, the law firms up here in Boston are, it's not a, it's not a, but they've just increased their rate structure to such a high amount that they've made it, but they've made it better. But, and of course we're talking about relative amounts, but lawyers work for people like you, right? So it's not, it's not the other way around, right? It's, you know, software multiples. If I could go back, if I had a time machine to go back, I would have tried to invest far more in the tool side as you did, as opposed to the service side. I just didn't know better. And I wasn't a software engineer. I wasn't a computer science major. That's the worst course I did in college was, you know, I was just enough to be dangerous, right? But I was never going to build a software tool on my own. But if I could go back, I would have figured out how to do that because a multiple in scale is beautiful. <laughs> Tell me about the competitive environment for your firm. Who were you up against? So in the early days, we were up against, there were a bunch of very small shops early on. I'm trying to remember who the very, very early. There was like Avnet with. Avnet. Yep. That's with, exactly with like, right. They, what did they have? Uh, they had campaign office. Campaign office. That was the number one Avnet campaign office. You're, God, I haven't thought about that in years. Yeah, that was the very first. That was a templated website kind of builder tool. There were there were literally dozens of them that cropped up. You know, every year there were more. Most of them didn't make it as enterprise. No, yeah. in fact, almost none of them. And it was interesting because we we stepped in on the premise of custom because their templates were so bad visually. You know, they didn't get the visual part right. But it's funny how that the cyclical now everything's templatized, right? So it's they've just gotten better at templates. So, you know, we sort of grew at the peak of the custom phase. So Avnet Campaign Office was a big one at the time. I think Aristotle had some small website thing at, at the time that we would run up against. I know obviously you guys ran up against them. And then there were a few mom and pop shops around that were doing kind of the same thing. And then... As, as we got into the 2003, 2004, 2005, um, we got into Nico's Echo Ditto, became a competitor. He's been um, on the podcast, yep. Yep, yeah, yeah. Nico's a good friend of mine um, up here in Boston. Um, and, then, uh, and then Josh Ross coming out of the Kerry campaign with Trilogy, ultimately started out as Mayfield. Yeah, Mayfield Strategies, they they beat us up. I think one of the problems that I had was I was I never worked on a big presidential campaign in a significant way, and I never had that juice which went downwards. And Blue State Digital also. Right? Yeah, so that so they they became a whale, and so there was a very pivotal point where Blue State Blue State basically everyone that touched a computer in Howard Dean's campaign was a responsible for that amazing success. And B, I feel like everybody started some sort of shop out of the Howard Dean campaign, Echo Ditto, Blue State Digital. And then Josh was obviously from Hillary Land and the Kerry Land and then Hillary Land. But um, uh, so they they were formidable competitors for me um, because they they were getting more. I was doing better in the House at smaller dollars and they were doing better at the Senate level on the bigger dollars because they were just perceived to be. Well, they raised the prices a lot. They got into the email marketing Suddenly, the budgets for campaigns for tech had ballooned because Josh and people like him knew how to sell that. 
and also the value to the fundraising side of the campaign was so inflated over what it had been. Yep. We were slow to integrate that way. We were still focused on website and they were providing more of that 360. So they had a value at which we would grow to evolve to. But at the time they were faster, faster to the trigger there. Did you, on the tech side, did you evolve to a, a standard CMS at some point? Or Yeah. So we had... We started working with a, a brilliant software engineer named Pascal in Boston, an MIT graduate who was the, probably the best programmer I've ever dealt with up in my life. And he had built a Ruby on Rails system called um, Webiva, which was an integrated CMS and email marketing tool. It was it did it did a lot of things, um, and we built a lot of custom functionality on it. We white labeled it Zisu after our. Um, my favorite movie, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, um, a Wes Anderson film. We used that platform for years and it was very successful and worked really well for a lot of years. What we ran up against after a while is Drupal and WordPress essentially got to a point where it was, you couldn't keep up with the brute force of the open source community. And because systems like NGP and then Blue State Digital Tools and Act Blue, all of it's NGP now, right? So it's, <laughs> but, it's um, um, but nevertheless, they were all... Um, Salsa people. Salsa like was a big one. So we ended up still having to integrate with these third party tools and then the model. So having our own, we couldn't keep up with the innovation of Salsa, your tool set and everybody else. So then it became, well, does it make sense to have this hybrid system that does some of the things there's overlap, but we're going to use this third party tool and how do we make it talk? And so eventually it became just build in WordPress and Drupal and have a standard CMS and integrate with these third-party tools. And that's when we became a non-tool company completely. You know, we had some write your rep tools, we had some advocacy tools, but it was never productized. It was always part of our sort of service offering and the models just changed and we couldn't keep up with those large software teams that were developing the tool set. And then there was Nation Builder um, too, um, which came along. So, and they tried to do, you know, everything all in one and had a much, you know, broader model. And so, you know, our business pivoted away from being a technology provider to being, you know, we still build a lot of websites, but we had to, you know, broaden our sort of service offering and, and even our clientele, right? We're not 100% politics anymore. We're, we're, I would say we're 50% public affairs at this point and 50% private sector work. Politics is not a great business model. And it saddens me a little bit because we had a couple of things that happened in the marketplace. Number one, the price of websites, we had severe downward pressure. So we had a peak in revenue growth, basically on website development and construction from maybe 2004 to 2007. And then there was a race to the bottom. And you guys were a big part of that race to the bottom because you were trying to swallow up just market share. This is my perception on the outside at the time. Um, and you guys were coming in and you were selling you were selling websites at a lower price point. And it wasn't just you, but there were a couple of folks that were coming in that were cannibalizing my business in the house. And so, whereas I would be able to sell a website at the peak in the house for maybe sixteen or $18,000, you guys were coming in for $7,500. And it got to the point where the website didn't matter as much as some of the other items. And so, that downward market force pushed us out of that space. And by the way, that's where it is today, even now, right? The website has become completely commoditized. You know, a few of the campaigns are paying a little bit more money for websites, but, you know, there was a point where, and I think in 06, where I got 50 grand to build a website for a gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, and that just doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, it's just not, it's been too commoditized. The marketplace has changed. So we, we just don't see that as much. There was just too much downward market pressure on websites. 
which by the way, is the entire website industry writ large, right? Not just political campaign website, right? Squarespace and a lot of these others have done massive damage towards um, sort of that small to mid-level website where providers like us used to thrive. Or viewing it from the customer standpoint, possibly nicer to have affordable tools for building websites that are plentiful. You know, when you say it like that, it makes it seem like the marketplace evolved as it should have. Yes. <laughs> no, you're, you're precisely right. And, and, and so you're absolutely right. I, from, the, from the business side, I wanted there to be the ascension of obviously a sort of linear curve to the a Dogecoin rise to the move of these things. But, um, but no, from the customer side, yeah, it, it didn't, you know, the marketplace figured out a way to provide a custom service cheaper in a more productized environment. And so we adapted and everyone has had to, right? So. John, tell me about that, how you make decisions as the market changes, as the competition changes, as the tech changes, as the demands and the expectations for the tools change from the client side. You ha you're running a business in the space. You have, to, you have to pivot. You have to make changes. How do you think about that? How do you do that along the way? What's your process? I'd like to say that it is more proactive than it is responsive, but for me, it's been responsive. It's been seizing opportunities. The opportunities sort of evolved in the digital space organically in a wide variety of fronts for us. And so we've had to diversify. You know, we had a few bad election cycles where, you know, the Republicans took over Congress. I lost 50% of my clients overnight, right? So the money stops. The monthly recurring revenue stopped. And so, you know, the greatest panic as a small business owner is my overhead has not gone down and my revenue is is now declining. And I might have to lose people that I care for and trained and work together and, and you know, care for. Oh, 100%. And that's a fear that kept me up at night for years. Still keeps me up at night today. I mean, there's, it just never goes away. And it's the worst part about being a, a small business owner is just the constant fear of, is the ride over? Have things changed? Can I adapt? And we've been able to. So what were some of the moves you made? Switching clientele base, diversifying, so not being solely focused on public affairs or, or campaigns. We used to define ourselves as a political technology or a political campaign consulting business. You know, now Liberty is a digital marketing firm, right? With a wide array of, of client types. Our public affairs work switched from campaign work to ballot questions, coalitions, better sustained financial models of clients with clients that could afford to pay larger retainers less productized per se. We still build a ton of websites, but we have a large strategic practice now that focuses on, you know, online fundraising, social media marketing, online advertising, digital reputation management. So we evolved essentially to provide those services where we could provide more value on a monthly basis to clients and help provide a more holistic environment around figuring out digital as opposed to here's your website, you know, give us X amount a month after we build it and go from there. Um, and so that's how we've tried to adapt. So who's an ideal client for you now? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I would say there's two types. I would say the ideal client is either A, a public affairs coalition or a large progressive advocacy group that's looking to move the needle in a state around a particular issue and figure out ways to better organize and engage their communities, more or less. That's where our sweet spot is. And then the second one is in the private sector, is uh, socially progressive companies that are looking to redefine how they engage with their customers using the value proposition that is more based on the science and art of political persuasion and engagement. I would say those are my two types of ideal clients these days. 
who's the toughest current competition for you for that kind of ideal client? Gosh, we've diversified so much. In the old days, we'd, get, we'd be running up against the same firm in every sort of RFP process, but now it's so diverse. I would say on the civic side, you know, we still run into Trilogy occasionally or, or Blue State, and there's some big firms you know, in New York City that are very socially progressive sort of impact firms that, you know, that we'll run into occasionally for sort of the large things. And there's um, on the campaign side, the company Wide Eye Creative in, in, in DC that does a, a fair amount of work these days, just on the website building side, they've done a real good job building, building a client base there. And then broader, it's just, you know, sort of general digital marketing outfits on the private side of which there are many. It's not as delineated as it used to be where it's like, you know, oh shit, we've got it. We're up against Blue State in this one in our an articulated man slash trilogy. And we've got to, you know, figure out what's the what's the sweet spot to to get in there. Yeah. I talked recently to a guest on the show who looking at the political campaign website space felt like there was no good solution for a small campaign. There was no affordable WordPress-based, easy-to-use, minimum viable product for the long tail of the market. If that's true, uh, you can tell me if you think it is, what advice would you give to someone entering that market now, uh, all these years after you did something like that? Well, I, I wouldn't tell them to enter the marketplace because I don't think the revenue is there. I just think it's too cyclical a business. I don't think there's enough money in it in order to really justify the cost. I'm not sure that assessment is accurate, by the way. There's so many sort of templatized systems out there. I guess I would answer that with, I think the marketplace needs to change in a different way and that I don't think it makes sense for there to be decentralized campaign websites everywhere. I was part of a startup a few years ago, democracy.com. It's a longer story, but tried to sort of manifest this. There should be a centralized network. Uh, and I hesitate to say social network because that means so much. There should be one single platform that every campaign in the country from state to local to school board all the way up leverages. With a lot of shared data. There was a attempt to do that. Do you remember Orchid? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was like a state party based model. I was concerned about that yeah, you know, I was too. <laughs> in, from a competitive standpoint, right? Like it seemed like a smart idea. It's along the lines of what you're, you're just now articulating. It's kind of the sort of thing, like, you know how the, the party adopted van ultimately as a 50 state solution, yep. there were so many benefits. Van is not a perfect tool, but there were so many benefits to everyone being on the same system and training people in one way and sharing data across the whole party and candidates taking advantage of the work of other candidates. There's a lot of pieces of a potential tech stack that could be, including websites, that could be broadly built by the party or by vendors that might help. Yeah. My dream, my dream is a centralized system one day that becomes the destination for American electoral politics. It's going to need some real money behind it and the right people. And by the way, 
it's going to be tough to get investment dollars because every investment in this space has basically failed over the years in this way for creating a network. And I'm not talking about a tool. I'm talking about yeah, the social network side, the the brigades. Voter.com, all of it has been. Now, you could argue that they didn't do it the right way, and clearly they didn't. And I would argue that there is a way to do it. But it doesn't make sense to just no, because have- people are on Facebook instead or the subsequent, the Instagrams or whatever. The, that's where people are located rather than a specialized social network. True. But I do think there is something there. I still think there's always room for something else and different. We just haven't cracked the code yet. But I think it's very difficult to sort of say, I wouldn't advise someone to say, hey, I'm going to figure out the campaign website business because it's just, it's just, it's too small an addressable marketplace. And the real money over the long term is in the small races everywhere that are completely underserved, right? So it's how do you monetize that basically? Because there's hundred, you know, a million elections every year, every place from school board to everywhere else. And they are massively underserved because their resources are so small um, around these things. So that's that figuring that is the next is the next sort of great, I think, advance in the political technology space is as either a social network or some form of you know, distributed web platform. But, you know, it's tough because then you've got to integrate with all of the existing, you know, vendors that are out there right now. It's a real barrier to entry, right? You've got compliance, you've got a lot of other factors involved in that. So it's it's not easy, but um, that's where I'd like to see something go someday. What do you think are the characteristics of a good political tech entrepreneur? Let's say progressive political tech. Progressive, fair enough. Yeah, we could have a longer conversation about the other side you need to be altruistically motivated to some extent because except for in the rarest of circumstances of which you were a part of, you're not really going to see probably a, you will make more money in the private, in a private sector tech entrepreneurship is going to yield far better results financially than working in the political tech space Two, a deep understanding of the political system, because it's not, there's been too many software entrepreneurs that have come in from outside and just tried to provide you know, sort of their take on how digital platforms work without truly understanding the political sensibilities and the political culture of the decision making there. And then apart from that, it would be sort of any sort of generic software entrepreneur, persistence, work ethic, all of this stuff's really hard. It's not, e it's not, it really isn't easy. You need to have sort of a masochistic dedication to, to doing this stuff. And as I look back at how I was when I started this with 20, I'm not sure with kids now at 40 that I have the same sort of, I know I don't, right? I don't have the same sort of. Well, you uh, are so young compared to me. I, I, it's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get any easier, but yeah, it's, um, you got to have hustle. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. When I built Liberty, I, I cold called everyone, uh, sometimes to a fault. I mean, I was on the phone. It you was had hustle. I've seen it with a few other firms. It makes a huge difference. Hustle makes a difference. It's the only way I know how to do it. I mean, and the best part about the campaign business early on was that you knew who your customers were because it was public. You had websites like I used to live on politics1.com because they had all the intel on who was thinking about running. And every day I would feel that fear. And yeah, fear is another great quality, by the way. Fear of entrepreneurship. Fear paranoia. Of yes. It's like only the paranoid survive, they say, right? There is a huge amount of truth to that. And I, 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 Envy the entrepreneur that is able to be extremely successful and doesn't feel a deep-seated anxiety every waking minute of every day because I still feel it today. And I have every day since I've done this. And the fear of failure lives, and it doesn't matter how much money you make, it's not a rational sentiment. It is a deep psychological fear of failure 
that drives me every single day. And it did then and it does now. And you know, I could be worth $100 million. I could have 20 bucks in my pocket. It would be the same fear of failure. And that's what you need to have is that. And that's what got me on the phone every day on politics1.com calling every single campaign. And dialing for dollars is not fun, right? This was not... This was not fun, but you know, I you know, I did everything I could to try to make it work. I couldn't relate more to that, you know, in my doing it in a different way. But I recently interviewed. Oh, you must know Maura Aaron's Mealy, right? Of course, very bright. Yep. She has a podcast called Anxious Achiever, and she has a book coming out on that. And she's an anxious person, admitted, and yet has done amazing things and. She feels driven by that. That anxiety has been, in, in a certain way, an asset to her because it's what keeps her running all day long, productive. It's, a, again, a, a far afield conversation, but one I wrestle with all the time. Can you be functional and high performing without feeling that deep seated sense of anxiety? I've noticed some people who can. I went to graduate school, but I never wrote a dissertation. I left to start a company. I think it was a good decision in my case, but I had a friend who just, from his testimony, would get up, write his dissertation, and then subsequently in his career books, get up, write for a few hours, have his day's accomplishment, seemingly without anxiety, and then do other things. And you just see some people who seem to be able to be highly productive without that internal gnawing fear that, that you seem to have. Yeah, it's not a good way to live. Like at the end of the day, it, no, it really isn't. It, I don't it, know it, that there's an alternative for a certain personality type. Probably not, and yeah. it, but it's uh, but it's a shame. Maybe it's my own uh, assignment out of this podcast for personal growth. But <laughs> <laughs> reflecting on it, you know, you just you think about you think about all the sleepless nights and all the stress, and was it really useful or productive? And probably yes, and probably no. But I would say that most entrepreneurs, I'd say, fall into my category as opposed to those that just blissfully sort of think that things are just going to work out. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's such an honor to talk to you and catch up. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have asked? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Would I do it all again is a good question. John, would you do it all again? Yes, I would do it all again. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why would I do it all again? You know, at the end of the day, there was something beautiful about being able to be whatever you perceive as your personal brand of success, but also being able to sort of manifest some level of change and being a part of it is worthwhile. I've got some friends that, you know, that have done very well professionally and, and, and successful, and, and I admire them for all that they've done, but it wouldn't have worked for me because there still underlies a commitment to achieving a better and progressive future. And th those questions matter. And to have been a part of that, it wasn't the best business in the business sense to do it. As my life winds down someday, I will look back and feel a measure of satisfaction that I was a very small part in a large operation to help sort of move things forward for the issues that I think uh, make for a better and more just society. I don't regret that for a day. Also, you, you got a kind of autonomy that I feel like you value. As hard as you work and as much as you may be stressed about it, you are your own man. You make decisions. You don't work for somebody else except, of course, for every client. Yes. <laughs> I just have 150 bosses as opposed to one. Yeah. But you, I mean, you, and you've built something. You've created an enterprise 
that you've shaped over time that's a living organism. And there's, I know, a great deal of pride in that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I've been at it for 20 years now. Most businesses don't last that long, right? And yeah, and working for yourself is there's definitely, you know, there's huge amount of, you know, there's cost to that for sure, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And there's an arrogance to that too, right? It's the arrogance that basically is that the belief that you can't work for somebody else because there's no one else that could do it better than you, right? So that no one should be your boss because they're not as talented. Now, that's not true, but that's something I convince myself of. And that's why I'm good at sales is because every time I walk into a room, I believe I am the smartest, most capable person in that room without fail. I believe it in my core. Wow, now, I've intellectually, that, that is, <laughs> ne- see, that is never, but it's never true, right? Maybe sometimes it is, but it's never true. And whereas in my case, it is true. Yeah. <laughs> well said. And that is probably true. <laughs> but that's how I but that's how I do it, right? That's just my secret sauce for doing it. I know it's not true, but that I have to convince myself of that. And that's why having a boss would be so difficult. I want to pick up one thread that I that I let uh loose along the way, which if you still have a few minutes. I have all the time you need. There was a point where you had some offers to sell the company. And also you mentioned there was a recent occasion where you had a deal, but it fell through. I I don't know the circumstances. Can you talk about why in those two different times and if there's any others, why you didn't sell? Sure. You know, when I was looking at our deal very early on, it was very seductive. The idea of having, first of all, never having a paycheck is a very weird phenomenon. And so early on, you know, the idea that someone was going to pay me a guaranteed salary, no matter what, was very seductive. There is something to that. You get used to it after a while. But when you're early on, the idea of just knowing that the end of the week, come hell or high water, good job or bad, someone's going to give you some money. That's fun, right? That's nice. I've never had that. But, you know, apart from working at the movie theater, but it's, um, uh, but, you know, I think when I looked at ours early on, it was just the business was just too young. It was just, I wasn't ready. It was just getting started. It was taking off. It just felt like it was you know, you were, I was, I was selling too early and you guys were in Washington and I was, I was in Boston at the time. And it just didn't feel at the end of the day, like it was enough at that point to sort of do the deal. And then later on, we were courted by several offers. And and a few years ago, I had a deal essentially done on paper to sell the company. Lawyers had gone through the entire process, very expensive and time consuming. And the two partners in the business essentially decided to divorce each other. And so the deal fell apart at the end. In, the, in the purchasing business, the two partners. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. They it's decided just a timing to problem more than anything. A timing problem, and in, in retrospect, I'm glad that they divorced right before, as opposed to right afterwards. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, that that would have been a disaster. Was it literal divorce? Like they were married or no, business divorce? No, yeah. business business divorce. Although I, I work with a few companies where they do have uh, husband and wife entrepreneurs, and I don't know how that works. But um, but yeah, but they just they had a business divorce where they separated. So, John, what's um, the what's the future for Liberty Concepts? Where are you going? I think about that all the time. I think the two questions are related to your previous one about doing a deal. I think when you're an entrepreneur, especially, and maybe this is useful for people listening, but you need to make a decision early on whether you are building a business to sell someday or whether you are building a lifestyle business that will pay you decently and you will have fun doing it because they are two very different businesses. And I have built the latter and not the former. If I were building a business purely to sell, you would be less focused on profit and more focused on growth. There needs to be a phase of you need to be reinvesting more earnings into into growth. And I think that that was something that a decision I made years ago that 
I was more interested in running a profitable business. And I was very scared of what I saw with other similar businesses like mine in town. I, I won't name them for, but where they would grow and contract massively on an annual basis. So they would go from 60 to 20. Liberty has never fired anyone for purely economic purposes in 20 years. And I'm semi-proud of that. And I'm not completely proud of that because that also means that I probably haven't taken more of a risk in order to scale up, but that's a conscious decision. So as Liberty moves forward, I have decided that it's not a business that scales well enough. The multiples are not large enough on service businesses, in my mind, to merit trying to grow revenue by 5x and then sell it for what's going to be a three times EBITDA or one times gross valuation. So for us, the track record, I think, is going to be continue to slowly and organically grow the business that we are today, where we provide you know high-level digital marketing services across a wide variety of, of spectrum types and grow that business by slowly and deliberately and, and profitably through um, you know, a large amount of attention of detail to our clients and hopefully continue to get larger and, and better clients along the way. But I, I think that's, that's our current trajectory. Now, that being said, if the right offer comes along, I'm always willing to entertain it, but it's, um, it's, um, but, uh, but I mean, uh, to me, like there's another possible thing that's unmentioned here, which is one reason to sell it wouldn't be all just about like, have I built something that I could sell and support me on the proceeds, but it could also be, you know, you're a talented guy with a lot of skills. You could do a different thing. You could write a different chapter that wasn't in digital marketing. So why stay with this? Or is this just the love? There's another keep you up at night question. I, I would like to be involved in, I would like to be involved in more and different businesses for sure. I have entrepreneurial ideas that are outside of the realm of all the things that we're talking about. I have a huge golf passion um, and I would love to be involved in a, in a golf-based business at some point or, or in some way. Uh, there are other things that I would, I would certainly like to do, but it, it's hard to picture sort of, I, I would see a scenario where I could hand the reins over a little bit more perhaps and stay tangentially involved. Yeah. That's also an option. Yeah. But I've seen that go bad in a lot of places. Yeah, that, But, but yeah. if you, you could retain control and then if it was going bad, you could just step back in. Right. Yeah, that, that's yeah. you're exactly right. But yeah, yeah. It, it would be fun. It would be fun to find the right ancillary project to work on. But it would be difficult to see myself completely stepping away from uh, the company unless it was a um, something that was really exciting and had, had great opportunity or was interesting. It's been super fun to talk to you, and it's it's so nice to see the guy that I knew in his early twenties now, uh, you know, married, father company stable and doing interesting things. It's a pleasure. To... I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me. And hopefully we didn't get too much into the twisted, <laughs> twisted psyche of a, uh, no. of a small business owner. Anything else you want to say? No, just thank you for having me. And uh, I'm sad that it takes us so long to, uh, to catch up, but uh, you run a wonderful podcast and just uh, very happy to be a small part of it. That was John Karish. John is at libertyconcepts.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.